Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Friday, April 16th, 2021. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. Glenn, how are you today? I'm great. How are you, Tony? Doing well, doing well. So Glenn, last week on the podcast, we discussed developments in fiscal policy. Today, we'll focus on monetary policy. In the new updated eighth edition, which we hope will be available in the not too distant future for instructors and students, we talk about the fact that in August 2020, the Fed announced a new monetary policy strategy. The two key points in that strategy seem to be that the Fed is going to move from its 2% inflation target, which they've had for a number of years, to an inflation target that averages 2%. And they said that they will begin to monitor shortfalls from maximum employment rather than deviations from maximum employment. Glenn, to what extent do you see this new strategy as being significantly different from the previous strategy? And do you think the new strategy will matter for the conduct of monetary policy? Well, it's a great set of questions, Tony. And I think your questions really cut to the core of some of the biggest monetary policy and capital markets questions today. The way I think about it, it is a change in policy. The inflation target of 2% that the Fed had set was never really that well articulated, but I think became viewed as more like a ceiling uh, than, than an average. The Fed had undershot that for some period of time since the great financial crisis. There seemed to be a view among central bankers that lower but still positive rates of inflation were fine and okay. That was a view shared uh, by the European Central Bank as well as the Fed. I think there's been a view that the too low inflation may have missed opportunities in the real economy. And so the Fed, I think, tried to do a version of what in econ speak might be closer to price level targeting, but given how uh, how difficult that is to explain, talked about it in terms of average inflation targeting. So if I set a target of 2%, and let's say inflation were 1% for a year, I could be 3% for another year and still be on average too. Now that sounds easier than it is because we don't know exactly how long undershoots and overshoots occur. And uh, the Fed has to really worry first and foremost about inflationary expectations. And so in allowing the rate of inflation to undershoot or overshoot, the question is what happens to those uh, expectations? So to clarify that, I think the Fed's got to do a few things. One as Vice Chair Clarida has been trying to do in a series of speeches, try to define the period over which that average would occur. I mean, otherwise, if I don't specify a period, the period, the word average is kind of meaningless. But a harder question is actually more economics-ish of why do we think the Phillips curve that we describe in the book was so flat for so long? Is it some structural change that is immutable? Or is it something like very long lasting, but essentially level adjustments from globalization, so-called China effects and so on. So I think the Fed is on a different strategy. I think it's got 
a lot of um, explaining to do. Could it have an impact? Yes, by letting the economy run hotter, the Fed may be able to push the unemployment rate down further and increase output gains. Whether or not, though, that unhinges inflationary expectations, which is the real key for capital markets, is the $64,000 question. And unfortunately, we don't know the answer. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that they may have made a bigger change than initially many people thought. Because I think, as you know, if you read the reactions when it came out in, in August 2020, a lot of people seem to think, well, you know, won't amount to a heck of a lot. But as I've done more reading in what Fed Chair Powell has said and what other members of the Federal Open Market Committee have said, I think that maybe we are seeing a fairly significant change here from what had been guiding the, the Fed over time. I've always been interested in this interaction between economic theory, economic policy, and what's happening in the economy. I mean, the uh, and macroeconomics in particular can be strong, as we talk about in the book. Um, macroeconomics really begins because of the Great Depression and you know, John Maynard Keynes writing the general theory and sort of putting macroeconomics on the path that it's been on uh, ever since. And you can think about, you, you mentioned the Phillips curve, you can think about the discussion in the late 60s of Milton Friedman, of course, famous um, University of Chicago economist and Edmund Phelps from Columbia University, how in the late 60s, they argued that if you attempted to drive the unemployment rate below some minimal level, which is usually called a natural rate of unemployment, you'd cause the inflation rate to accelerate. And in the chapter 27 of the book, we talk about you know, shifting up the Phillips curve, meaning that the, the trade-off gets worse. And they also pointed out, particularly Friedman, that if you accept the idea that a change in monetary policy takes a long time to affect the economy, that you know, as we as we mentioned in the book, you're basically operating through interest rates, and uh, for instance, you try and spur the economy by cutting interest rates. It takes a while before people decide. Well, you know, maybe we should go shopping for a for a house and. Uh, you know, they have to get a mortgage and builders take time to, to build the houses and get property and go through zoning and so on. So it can take a year or two. So there was this idea then that if you waited, you meaning the Fed, waited too long to try to bring down an inflation rate that was getting above the level you'd like it at, that you may have let inflation get embedded in the economy which as we talked about in the book means that workers and firms and financial markets all expect that inflation is gonna be higher than they did. And it can be hard to, to ratchet those expectations downward. So uh, as we mentioned in the book, that seemed like a pretty good prediction of what actually happened in the 70s through the early 80s, that inflation did increase, people's expectations of inflation increased, and it really wasn't until Paul Volcker, who was, of course, chair of the Federal Reserve in the late 70s and early 80s, until Paul Volcker uh, increased interest rates to what were record levels that, uh, and brought about the, the severe recession of 1981-82, that inflation was brought down significantly. 
And so I think that that episode bulked large in the Fed's thinking really up until comparatively recently. The idea that if you let inflation accelerate, it gets embedded in the economy. And the only way you can bring it down is by causing a recession. Because I went back and I read some of the things the Fed was, was saying that Janet Yellen in particular, who was, who was then chair of the Fed in, in 2015, as they prepared to increase the target for the federal funds rate, for the first time since 2008, essentially in the financial crisis, they lowered it to zero and they, they didn't raise it until the end of 2015. And Yellen very much talks about why they were doing it in these terms that would have been familiar, I think, to, to Friedman or to Phelps, that if they waited too long for uh, inflation to increase, then it was gonna be difficult to deal with. So they had to act proactively because if they waited, then you know it would take a year or two for the monetary policy to affect the economy, and that would be too long because inflation would get embedded in the economy. That view no longer seems to be accepted at the Fed, maybe correctly, maybe they were right to move away from it. For instance, I was reading an interview by, uh, with Janet uh, Yellen, who of course now is Treasury Secretary under, under President Biden, and she was asked, well, what happens if inflation gets worse? And she said, well, we've got the tools to deal with that. If we see a significant uh, increase in inflation, you know, the Fed has the ability to act, which presumably means increasing interest rates. But the old view was if you waited and inflation got worse, then it was too late. By the time you brought it down, people's expectations had changed. So what do you think about that? Do you think it, it really is the case that this as I've come to conclude, that the Fed really has changed how it views the way it should react to increasing inflation, namely to sort of nip it in the bud rather than wait till it's, um, it's become significantly higher and then act. I think that's true, Tony. I, I think that change has happened and I would explain it in two parts. One is a view by many current members of the FOMC, including the past and current chair, that uh, greater sensitivity to output and employment is warranted. Uh, to my mind, that's almost uh, asking the Fed to do too much. There is much that fiscal policy can do. That's a discussion we're now having. What's the appropriate role uh, for fiscal policy? Your points about expectations, I agree with uh, and, and worried. So in the 1960s, inflationary expectations were anchored until they weren't. And to Secretary Yellen's point about, we have the tools to deal with inflation, absolutely true. But when Paul Volcker had to use those tools to deal with inflation when it had become unanchored in expectations, the real output and employment costs were very large. So the Fed may be right, but we are waging a very large bet. And so I, I certainly hope there, and doubtless there is, continued discussion with inside the Fed over whether Friedman and Phelps were really so wrong. Yeah, you know, I've, I've referred to Olivier Blanchard's, um, I, I'm almost like his publicity agent, I guess, these days, to his um, piece that he uh, wrote probably more than a month ago now, where he explicitly looked at the situation of what happened in the late 1960s, because as you mentioned, essentially uh, inflationary expectations were quite low and properly so because 
as we talk about in the book, before that time, the U.S. had never experienced the significant sustained inflation, except during wartime. So there was no real reason for workers, firms, financial markets in the late 60s to think that the inflation rate would rise much above one, one and a half percent. But once it did, uh, they reversed those expectations pretty quickly. They ratcheted them up and kept ratcheting them up until by uh, 1980 or so, we were up above 10% inflation. So it's, it, it's interesting, uh, you mentioned the Phillips curve as well, that Chair Powell has mentioned and other members of the FOMC have talked about the fact that the Phillips curve might be very flat these days, which means that changes in unemployment are not having much impact on inflation. Certainly saw that as, as unemployment got very low 2019, early 2020, and inflation did not increase. But it's almost as if they're saying, well, it's perfectly flat. It's like a horizontal line, in which case unemployment has no effect on inflation. And you wonder, well, what does? And it seems as if they're relying on that anchoring. That, okay, people are expecting one and a half, two percent inflation, and they'll continue to do so. But as you say, we're kind of running an experiment about whether that's true and whether or not you can get above 2%, 2.5%, 3%, and people say, okay, that's only transitory, you know, inflation will come down. Well, here's a, here's a related point, a, a second question for you. But actually, Tony, before you do that, oh, you make a great point, and just the, the fact that Rich Clarida, who's vice chair, you know, just gave a speech on this, that I would draw an analogy akin to a boxer who's looking at you and letting you kid him until he punches you in the face. And the way I interpreted what Clarida said was he focused a lot on the Fed's interest in looking at wage gains uh, relative to productivity. So I do think it's the case that if the Fed realizes it's getting way out of line, that is if unit labor costs are rising really rapidly, it's going to take action. And I think people aren't paying enough attention to what Clara and others are, are saying, whether that comes with a cost that it's too late and inflationary expectations, we'll have to see. But I do worry the markets could get punched in the face by the Fed before they realize. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very interesting. I've, I've been reading a lot of um, the recent speeches by FOMC members. I live a very exciting life. And many of them are saying uh, a similar sort of thing that, well, you know, inf- inflationary expectations are well anchored. Any inflation that we see the rest of this year, maybe even to early next year, will be interpreted by markets and individuals and, and firms as transitory. But we just don't know, you know, because as people have pointed out, in the late 60s, you could say that workers and firms and financial markets should also have treated the increase in inflation as transitory. But um, of course, it turned out not to be, and, and they ratcheted their expectations up. But there's kind of a related point that, uh, as you know, the, the Fed publishes a monetary policy report. The most recent one was February of this year. And they have a section in there on monetary policy rules, such as the Taylor rule we discuss in chapter 25. And of course, the Taylor rule indicates that the target for the federal funds rate should be determined in part by the gap between the target inflation rate, currently 2%, and the actual inflation rate, and also the gap between 
the target unemployment rate, presumably the natural rate of unemployment and the actual unemployment rate, or sometimes people say, well, the level of potential GDP and the level of actual GDP. So there's a, a discussion in that report. And certainly if you read that section, it's fairly lengthy. You get the impression that the Fed still believes that policy should be guided to at least some extent or should pay attention to a monetary policy rule without saying you know which specific one. But then I was also looking at the, the most recent Federal Open Market Committee meeting, which was in March. And as you know, at the end of that meeting, each member of the FOMC presents his or her projections for what they think is going to happen to key economic variables, GDP and unemployment, inflation, and also the, um, what they think is going to happen to the federal funds rate. And if you, if you read those projections, they have the federal funds rate at the end of 2023 still being effectively zero, it's 0.1%. But they also think that the unemployment rate will have fallen in 2023 to 3.5%, which historically is, is quite a low rate. So it's hard to think of a policy rule that would keep the target for the federal funds rate essentially at zero when the unemployment rate gets that low. So how do we interpret that? Has, has the Fed, although still sort of paying lip service to policy rules, said essentially we're not really going to be bound by them? Well, I think that's right. I, I don't think the Fed is following a policy rule. I mean, the first place in a mechanical sense, the Taylor rule, which was drawn from a period in which there were you know, decidedly non-zero values in the federal funds rate, variation on the right-hand side, unemployment and inflation. That's not a world in which we live in at the moment. I do think Taylor rule logic guides some FOMC members, i.e. in trying to figure out the weights they put on inflation deviations and unemployment deviations. But like you, I, I interpret the forecast as meaning the absence of a rule because you'd have to either believe committee members simply put no weight on any possible inflation or that they believe that the inflation is absent, which gets back to the Phillips curve discussion because there's no scenario in which the unemployment rate is dropping to three and a half percent that doesn't also have very robust output growth. For capital markets, this is a big issue too because in addition to this guess about inflation, it's hard to imagine real interest rates staying at such low levels if output growth really were as robust as the Fed's forecast suggests. So I don't really think they're following an operating rule, which is the kind of rule the Taylor rule is. Rather, if they're following something, it would be thinking about a glide path for the balance sheet and for lack of a better term, jawboning or talking to the markets as macro factors change. It would, you'd have to be into the territory of uh, significantly positive values of the funds rate to go back to the old Taylor uh, operating rule. Uh, but I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, well, it, it seems to me we're almost maybe back in Alan Greenspan times where, you know, when Greenspan was, was chairman of the Fed, he sort of famously intentionally was uh, obscure <laughs> and didn't really want to be bound by any particular set of rules. And, you know, things worked out relatively well but 
that approach doesn't seem too optimal. I, I guess the other thing is that you wonder that the if the more ungrounded Fed policy is in rules, the more it potentially risks its independence. You know, as, as we talk about uh, in the book, there of course is no constitutional provision for a central bank. The central bank exists, the Federal Reserve exists um, only because Congress created it. And if you have a Fed that has carefully circumscribed mandate, so which essentially Congress has given it, you know, to have price stability and to have maximum employment. And if you follow that mandate with by operating with transparent rules, I think the Fed is on firmer ground in saying, well, look, Congress, you have given us this mandate. And this is how we intend to reach it. So, you know, what can you object to? But as you get too far away from that, as the Fed, is, if the Fed can be seen, whether it actually is, if it can be seen as operating in a more arbitrary way that's difficult for people to understand, I think then it kind of undermines the case that Congress and the president um, should keep their hands off monetary policy and makes the Fed maybe seem more like a, another government agency that, that Congress and the president maybe have a bigger role in, in guiding. I don't know if that... I, I think that's right, Tony. The, um, I would start with financial regulation where the Fed's footprint has grown larger. While that's not the same subject as monetary policy, financial regulation is an inherently political subject. And the Fed's central role there since the uh, great financial crisis does raise independence concerns in, in my view. And then when you get to monetary policy, as you say, the lack of any sort of a rules framework combined with what could look like very close relationship between the Fed and the treasury and government finance and in the era of very large deficits uh, really does raise potential concerns about independence. Now, as a practical matter, I think the Fed officials from the chair on down do think of themselves as an independent agency. They're trying to do their jobs well, but that's not going to stop the political onslaught uh, about the Fed, given both the regulation concerns and the government finance concerns. At least that would be my two cents. Yeah, maybe we can follow up on that because, you know, not to get too far into the weeds, but as we discuss in chapters 25 and 27, in the era when banks hold huge reserve balances, uh, which has been true really since the financial crisis in 2008, the federal funds market is much less active, right? Because of course the federal funds market is the market in which um, commercial banks, primarily, although other, other financial firms are in there to a limited extent, borrow and lend very short term, usually overnight. And the rationale for that market was really that this was how the commercial banking system managed to hit the reserve requirements that the Fed had for them. If you were a little bit, you a commercial bank were a little bit short, you could borrow overnight. And if you had surplus funds to lend, you could, you could lend them overnight. But of course, there are no reserve requirements anymore. And uh, even during the last period when there were, banks held balances way above the amount that they had to. So because the federal funds market is no longer as important, uh, to affect short-term interest rates, 
the Fed has been relying in part on the market for treasury repurchase agreements, which are basically short-term loans that are um, collateralized by treasury securities. So leaving aside the mechanics of how monetary policy now works, which we, we do discuss in chapter 25 uh, in the textbook, but leaving that aside for the, the purpose of this discussion, is the Fed at risk of losing some of its independence on, on this, because of this aspect as well, because it's moved away from monetary policy having to do mainly with the commercial banking system, right? Mainly affecting that federal funds rate, which was mainly the interest rate commercial banks were charging each other, to the market for treasury repurchase agreements, which is a much larger market and involves many, many more firms. So it pushes the Fed away from the commercial banking part of the financial system into really kind of the middle of the financial system. I think that's right, Tony. It raises a couple of questions. You know, one in a mechanical level, is the Fed's increased presence there making it very close, uh, in a sense, to uh, the Treasury itself? And at a more co uh, conceptual level, without a rule in mind, going back to our earlier discussion, is there any limit on these kinds of activities? And does it raise the specter of Fed Treasury coordination? Uh, going back to a point I made earlier in, in government finance, there's also an issue going back to commercial banks themselves because the Fed uses uh, interest on excess reserves uh, as, a, as a policy tool. Were we to have a demand issue, inflation getting out of hand and so on, while the Fed has tools, i.e. increasing interest payments on excess reserves, that too will raise political economy questions of the Fed subsidizing the banking system. So I think there are just a number of political economy problems here. I, I don't think they're necessarily the Fed's fault, but it will face them over the coming years. Yeah, it's actually occurred to me that is it time to revisit the Federal Reserve Act? Because, you know, as we discuss in the in the book, the Federal Reserve Act was passed in the early 20th century at a time when commercial banks were the center of the financial system. And the Fed was clearly set up in a way that was uh, meant for its main effects to be on the commercial banking system. But, you know, not because of anything the Fed has done, but just the way the financial system has evolved. Uh, commercial banks are no longer as important as they once were. And if the Fed is going to be uh, the agency we turn to uh, when we have financial problems like in 2008 or again in 2020, uh, the Fed is almost certainly going to have to move beyond just dealing with commercial banks as it did in 2008 and as it did again in, in 2020 with the lending and credit facilities that it set up, many of which um, had had nothing directly to do with commercial banks. So is it time for, rather than this kind of uneasy uh, situation we're in where the, the Fed is drawn into things that are outside of its purview as, as set up initially in 1913 and then modified a number of times over the years, is it time for Congress to sort of take the bull by the horns and say, well, you know, maybe we have to rethink how we regulate the financial system and uh, maybe we formally give the Fed additional powers or we sort of formally rein them in and, and give those powers to somebody else. 
I think you had me up to the Congress point. <laughs> All kidding aside, I think that this is a great tease maybe for a future uh, discussion. I think the, the problem is the Fed is trying to do this reinvention inside itself. One view of that might be the Fed as this Mandarin power-seeking view. I don't think that's the case. I, I think more likely the view is if you just ask Congress to reopen the Federal Reserve Act, don't ask a powerful person a question when you don't want to hear the answer. So maybe yeah. that's the conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's interesting. I haven't seen that much discussed, but it, it struck me the other day as I was thinking about it that if you're concerned that the Fed has been pulled out of the commercial banking system and into the broader financial system, and that in doing so, it's uh, going beyond the boundaries of the Federal Reserve Act, maybe it's time to rethink the Federal Reserve Act. But you're right, that's a can of worms, and who knows but, uh, what might come out of that can if we opened it. Great. Well, I think that's been a good discussion of monetary policy, and I hope we've given instructors and students a few things to think about. A reminder that this podcast is available on iTunes, where you can subscribe and make us part of your podcast feed. Please keep checking our blog at hubbardobrieneconomics.com for new content. You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. And if you have an issue or concern that you'd like us to discuss, you can send us an email at hubbardobrieneconomics at gmail.com. Thanks again to everyone for listening, and we will see you next time on the next Hubbard and O'Brien podcast. Thank you.